Joining me today on our first podcast interview is Dr. Michael Corcoran. Michael is an intensivist and anaesthetist currently working in Townsville in Queensland, Australia, and is always an engaging speaker, and I'm delighted to have him as our first guest today. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Michael, on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. Not at all. Um, look, I've just been reading through your bio, and I note that you've you've spent time in an enormous number of places over um, your lifetime. I thought maybe we could start just by running down some of those sorts of places. You you grew up in Melbourne and then moved to to various parts of Australia during your primary time. Is that right? Yeah, in fact, I um, I was born in Melbourne. Didn't spend very long there, and in fact, in my childhood, didn't spend particularly long anywhere. Um, my dad job moved us around a lot and I suppose the place I spent longest was probably um, just outside Port Moresby um, but yeah I had I think I had more school than years in primary school <laughs> and you ended up doing your, um, your university training in Queensland yep at UQ um, I did my last bits of uh, last bits of schooling um, just um, t- just outside Brisbane in a city called Redcliffe, and uh, and then so went and went to UQ and did my whole undergraduate time there. It was about that time that you you joined the RAF as an undergraduate. Is that right? Yeah, they had a scheme uh, and still have a scheme where you can be paid as an undergrad, and um, uh, that was that. And already having an interest in aviation um, made um, an interest in aviation and an interest in um, having our finances sorted out were were very strong inducements for doing that, and uh, it actually worked out incredibly well, uh, I think, for both of us. You ended up in in Townsville doing your your um, intern and resident type years, didn't you? In um, UQ lets you go around the state a bit in the last year or so, yep. and um, I did my surgical term up in Townsville, um, among doing other terms in other centres, and I really and I really liked it up here. Um, so I came back here for my intern resident years. What were the sort of reasons that, that led you to going back up to Townsville at that time? Um, the I, I really like I must be I, I do like medium sized cities, um, you know, sort of where you got a, got. Most of everything, but not the, uh, you know, not the, um, some of the pressures of big cities. Uh, and the hospital was, you know, the hospital fees are, even as a student, you'd see the hospital deals with a really diverse base of, um, of, uh, of cases. Um, you get a reasonably broad scope of practice. Um, and, you know, living in a city where we had good access to things like the Great Barrier Reef and some fantastic national parks. Um, were all very strong inducements. Plus, the fact my uh, my then girlfriend, um, uh, now wife, uh, came from up here, which um, was you know which sealed the deal. Yep, anesthesia and ICU training. It was uh, was there a combined training program that you went through at that time? There wasn't. There was nothing organised as such. Um, the structure at the time made it reasonably easy. Probably you. Probably worked out reasonably early in your training that you wanted to do both um, to try and pick um, pick terms and, and make sure that all your slots counted. That you could, um, you know, with a bit of careful planning, you could make sure that ICU training didn't add enormously time-wise to anaesthetic training. And um, and having had four years of essentially GP type experience, um, I, I don't think went astray. But there was the there was a WA very well coordinated scheme for anaesthetic training, as there still is. Um, and the ICU training, the, the guys were very supportive and managed to merge that really well. So even though it wasn't a formal combined training scheme, it, it functioned that way anyway, for myself and for a bunch of other people. Yeah. 
Was ICU something that you'd been intending to do uh, when you started that program? In fact, when I um, when I had been a resident, because all the terms were combined here, I actually didn't realise that they were you know as separate as they were. Um, I did an ICU six month rotation fairly early in my anaesthetic training, and realised that I wanted to do combined training from you know pretty much from the outset. Um, and um, and that I'd want to practice in both long term. So I suppose right at the very beginning, uh, there was a bit of oblivion on my part as to uh, the separate streaming, yeah. but uh, that fairly quickly coalesced to uh, realising I wanted to train in both and put myself through uh, the pleasure of both uh, examination processes. <laughs> Which you completed in 1999 and then took up some work in Townsville, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, I did my anaesthetic fellowship exam in 97, my ICU in 98, and actually um, got, got my sets of, yeah, got my fellowships within a couple of months of each other in 99, then moved fairly, fairly shortly after that back, to, uh, back to, to Townsville, where I stayed for about another eight years. It's, it's interesting. You, you, had you maintained some anaesthetics in, in your practice in Townsville? Yeah, for the first few years, um, a, a smaller, a lesser amount. Um, the you know, but in my in more recent times, I'm now doing about fifty fifty, uh, which I, I really enjoy the mix, and I think there's a um, I think there's a um, I think there's a lot of benefit in both. I think the um, there are some um, skilled aspects, uh, some skilled and technical aspects that are very useful in anaesthesia uh, that you can carry across into intensive care. There are a lot of cognitive and uh, and teamwork things that are very valuable from intensive care you can carry across to anaesthetics. So I think the mix actually supports each other. Um, probably the biggest downside is the enormous literature you've got to keep up with nowadays to uh, keep up in both fields. It, it's something that has struck me about these combined programs is that that concept that you do need to maintain excellence in in two fields. How do you manage that, and do you find that as a problem? Um, I suppose you have to ask the people that I work with as to whether I maintain excellence in any field. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think it's a problem, but it is something you need to be aware of and need to manage from the absolute outset. Um, And particularly if you go through any phases where you're doing less of one, um, you need to then, you know, when you go back to a a more balanced um, volume of both, you need to uh, really, you know, work on those particular skills. Um, and, And I think one of the big things is, Keeping up with both, keeping up with both sets of literature, keeping up with what's moving ahead in both fields is something you have to be prepared to devote a considerable amount of time to. Yeah, I, I, I think I think one of the big things is when you work with other people. Um, if you work in a collegiate environment too, you you hear a lot of stuff. There's a, you know there's, a, there's department meetings. There's a lot of um, there's discussion and there's education. I think those. Uh, um, I think one of the one of the uh, training organisations recently said. Um, in fact, I might have even been answered. Said uh, to study on your own is hard work. To study with colleagues is a lot easier. And I think that's very true um, in in this sort of environment. You know, in that maintaining skills environment. There is a certain irony there, though, isn't there? That uh, the situation that people with dual fellowships are most likely to find themselves in is in regional practice, and where those that sort of collegiate environment is less likely to be. Um, it does raise the, the the issue of the the single stream for intensive care training and training in Australia, at least in recent years, has been a post fellowship extra, and it now seems to be morphing towards its own specialty. It's got its own primary exam. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts on that might be. Yeah, I think 
to a discipline that it is reasonable to train as a single stream in. Um, and, you know, and, I, and clearly the college is producing outstanding, outstanding intensivists. And I think, you know, Australia is, um, you know, we're streets ahead of most of the world on, on how we produce intensivists and how we run intensive care with uh, no disrespect to our international colleagues. And it is a, it is a separate discipline. It's, you know, it isn't. Um, you know, it doesn't fall under anyone else's umbrella anymore. Even though we have skills that cross over many many disciplines, um, I actually. You know, I mean, I support. I support the notion. I think the main thing that uh, our fellows, or our future fellows, need to be aware of is the breadth of clinical experience they need to get to be able to do the job. Um, in the way that it should be done and um, particularly if they're going to go to an area where they will have a diverse practice base they need to think about that in their training um, and make sure they get you know they, they get rotations that expose them to as wide a, a clinical as wide a clinical pool as possible um, I suppose one of the big areas that, um, that springs to mind there is making sure that people that are going to go to the country have uh, some experience of paediatrics uh, so that they because these patients fall on their lap and it is possible within our training scheme you know never you know never have dealt with any you you've been a strong advocate of regional training um over the years haven't you, you you've worked as the 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 former chair of the the rural and regional committee of the the joint faculty of intensive care medicine what are your what are your views on the way that regional practice in intensive care is going um <clears throat> I think we're I think we're going to um, have challenges in regional practice for a while yet. Uh, I think there are a few there are a number of issues. One we mentioned before about uh, support you know support of colleagues. Um, you know we need to make sure that we have departments that uh, are adequately staffed to you know to um, uh, to be able to for people to have a reasonable lifestyle and to be supported. Um, I you know, wonder if at times I wonder if for a lot of departments links with a larger department might be a way to facilitate that, but each you know, each unit's gonna to have to find its own way there. Um, and I think the other thing is making sure that people have the the background and their training to be able to cope with the very diverse uh, workload that you're going to get, um, and also the um, and also in a lot of regional centres, access to complex investigations may not be as on tap as they are in a quaternary centre. Um, having said that, and obviously my um, my career path has shown that I have a, a strong leaning towards rural and regional practice. Um, even though the centre I'm in now would um, you know has most of the bells and whistles um, and I can't you know I can't speak from such a constrained environment perspective now but I do think some expo- I actually think exposure to rural and regional is something that every intensivist should uh, should have under their belt so that they so they get a feel for that diverse sort of practice yeah um, that's a personal view what have you in your experience what have the barriers been to getting people out to regions and and experiencing those sorts of things um, I think well, a couple have been, in, in terms of senior staff, uh, you know, the shortage, the shortage of intensivists in large centres has been such that you know, people have been um, scooped up by big centres that haven't had enough intensivists to run their services. Um, that may change with the pool of trainees coming through. And um, so at the senior level, I think there's been, there's been numerical issues. I think there are still barriers in administration that not understanding intensive care is a specific discipline and, um, and that... Uh, and that Specifically trained people need to be providing that, uh, you know, providing intensive care services, and um, there are still some attitudinal barriers there. Um, 
And those are major things. I think amongst our trainees, um, we haven't got across to our trainees how good rural and regional practice is and how enjoyable that diverse practice base can be. Um, and um, yeah, mechanisms to expose trainees to some time in a rural and regional centre, I think, would um, not only uh, uh, not only help with um, with workforce in the short term, but I think would a number of people would find uh, rural and regional practice desirable, and would want to come out to the you know would want to come out to regional centres um, if they were given that exposure. Um, it's a difficult problem. There's no uh, there's no rapid and easy fixes for it. Um, I think in the training in the training sector, when we look at integrating intensive care in a regional centre with some of the other things that you can get, like anaesthetics in a regional centre, where again very diverse practice, and often register, you know, often trainees getting a chance to be hands on with more things they would in a large centre, uh, and similarly in medicine, um, I think the opportunity to create a training bundle based in a regional centre that would give trainees a fantastic package is there, um, and we've just got to exploit it. You, you mentioned Peter. I know you have feelings about that. <laughs> That's exactly right. I'm preaching to the converted. Michael, you've, you've mentioned paediatrics there. Um, you, you've obviously had some experience there. I think you spent two or three years in paediatric centres in Brisbane. Uh, yep, I, um, I made sure, because I knew I was going to come to a regional centre when I finished my training, I made sure I had a good block of paediatric anaesthesia and um, and actually worked as the um, PICU senior registrar um, at uh, Princess Margaret in Perth uh, as a senior trainee in ICU. Um, and um, we've always had a paediatric caseload here in Townsville um, uh, that's been part of our core business. We've always mo- monitor outcomes and um, and um, then when, I, for family reasons, I went to Brisbane for three years from 2008 to 2010, I actually spent some time doing uh, locum positions in PICUs, which, um, which was a fantastic opportunity for me. Um, and, uh, you know, I got a huge amount out of that. But the, the value I got out of doing some paediatrics as a trainee um, can't be, you know, just can't be overstated. It really was fantastic. It illuminated big, big parts of my adult practice for me um, and, of course, made working in a centre where sick children do get presented to you uh, much less, a much less stressful and I think a much more effective uh, thing to be involved in. It must be very difficult to balance the the opposing forces of trying to gain enough experience as a unit in in that niche area, while simultaneously not overstepping the boundaries. So how did you manage to do that? Uh, that's a very <laughs> it's a very fine balance. It's a very it's very important to recognise the limitations of the unit, and of course they're not just medical; they're senior medical, junior medical, um, nursing, and also. Um, um, Paramedical staff, you've really got to think about that whole that whole process, and you have to think about it flowing out to the ICU, uh, out of the ICU into the wards as well, and what your services for these kids are beyond there. Um, the other, I think, the other thing is that the those limits are dynamic and depend on who, <coughs> staff in your department at particular times. So there are. That all has to be balanced up with um, the need, the need for a volume outcome relationship, and the fact, yeah, and the and the better outcomes you get with children being in PICU versus the risk of transport, um, and making and really, it is a fine balancing act. Um, and that's one of one of the reasons why, in in amongst those processes, you know, outcome, you know, monitoring outcomes is always a really important part of that. 
um, you know, none of this undermines the fact that um, under most circumstances children should be managed in a specific PICU, although Queensland has some very specific geographic issues. Um, and there are a number of units here that manage children with limits that they acknowledge very carefully um, with very good outcomes. Yeah. Uh, and there's no easy answer to that. There's no straightforward formula. Um, it really has to be... It really has to be worked out you know, very carefully at a, at a unit level um, in consultation with the people around that unit. I don't know if that answers the question at all. What's the, the support been from the, the paediatric units for you in that sense? Uh, we've had excellent support from um, our, from MARTA and from Royal, um, both in terms of um, intellectual support, in terms of willingness to engage, um, and, of course, support for um, moving kids when we need to. Yeah. Uh, so they have, um, they have been fabulous in, in, helping, uh, in, you know, in helping both with the management and also in the, in the boundary setting. Um, and, you know, we can't thank them enough from up here. Uh, we, we touched earlier on your, your uh, involvement with the armed forces, Michael, and I know that you recently spent some time overseas. I was wondering whether you could tell us about that. Since I've been out of the permanent forces, I've been in the uh, RAF, in the Air Force Specialist Reserve, um, and um, have been involved with them now for quite some years. Um, in early 2010, um, I was part of the um, military, uh, sorry, the medical task force um, that w went and provided surgical and intensive care, surgical anaesthetic and intensive care services um, to a small hospital in Afghanistan. Um, where we provided care for, um, uh, obviously, for coalition forces, but also for um, civilians who, whether injured or ill, uh, for whatever mechanism um, we could uh, provide aid for. And uh, that, that was a couple of months on. Um, it was a... Um, it was a a, um, a salutary experience in terms of being able to provide help for a lot of people for whom there is a very simple healthcare system and we're able to do some, you know, do some good things for, you know, particularly for the locals, um, to be there for, to support our own people. Um, and, um, and in amongst it all, of course, I, um, uh, I learned, you know, I learned an enormous amount um, about many aspects of life and about clinical practice. Um, obviously, without going into too many details about it, it, um, it was um, one of those things where I think we managed to achieve something very useful for for other people, um, and um, and it was a yeah, very salutary experience uh, for for myself. And your practice um, wasn't restricted to intensive care and aesthetics, I guess, in that that sense. Yeah, although we provided a lot of um, we yeah we provided a lot of uh, ward uh, ward medicine. Um, it was a very small hospital, only 14, uh, 14 or so beds, but uh, we provided um, uh, ward meds and uh, uh, no, no primary care. Other people dealt with all of that, but for, inpa for inpatients, it was a very diverse, um, uh, you know, very diverse um, base yet again. Um, there are some illnesses in those parts of the world that we don't, uh, don't tend to deal with here, and, uh, and so... Um, again, it's that whole stretching, uh, stretching knowledge, um, stretching, uh, stretching your um, clinical capabilities, and also, obviously, in that part of the world, for various reasons, there is trauma of patterns that we just don't get to see here. Yeah. Um, and very, and a very specific um, need for patterns of management to get these people so, um, well as quickly as possible. 
has it impacted on your clinical practice now? What sort of things have you brought back from that experience? It has um, the recognition of, uh, of, of how you do damage control, uh, which really is done superbly uh, in that part of the world. Um, you know, damage control pre pre-theatre, theatre and post-operatively um, and ways of managing people with major, particularly major multi-system trauma um, that really that really do make, thing, make things do very well. Um, that includes, yeah, everyone thinks about damage control as being minimum bone resuscitation, but it's not that. It's a whole continuum of care. So the whole concept of damage control I knew a lot more theoretically before I went and now I understand much better um, and have seen how well that approach works. Um, the other thing I have learned is how small teams can provide effective care, um, uh, particularly you know, if they're well, you know, if they're well run and um, and work together. I think that's been a huge, uh, you know, a huge learning point mm-hmm. for me. And um, and uh, and also learning transfusion practices, which have been evolving um, and um, experience from you know from the last couple of years in. Um, well, from from various sources and changing transfusion practice, particularly changing massive transfusion practice, which in Australia we don't get to put into practice that often, um, but we uh, got to do uh, we got to do um, uh, or sorry got to gain reasonable experience of uh, in um, uh, in that environment. So learned lots of things that are very applicable to practice here, particularly in regards to trauma. You, you mentioned the teamwork aspect, and you went through quite a, an active preparation phase. I don't know how much you can tell us about it, but uh, it was quite a, a big deal, I understand. Uh, I think one of the big things is that um, in, our, in our rush to simulation and um, running very high-fidelity um, clinical aspects of simulation, some of... Some centres have forgotten the um, the need for training teams to work effectively together, and in fact, we had a huge focus on training the team to work effectively together um, with using simulation that didn't have a high clinical fidelity, but had a very high process and workflow fidelity. Um, and that's been a huge um, learning point for me because that made an enormous difference to how uh, how we were able to do business from straight, you know, from really from the, the moment we got there. Um, and you know, I think there's pretty good data now to show that teaching people to work in teams and teaching people to use processes um, in, the, you know, in, in the civil environment, even in the cardiac arrest environment, is, some, is often more effective than, um, than teaching very high individual skill, uh, skill standards. And you know, I'd, read, I'd read that literature and uh, nodded, you know, nodded sagely, but now having put that into practice, realise that it's really important to train teams to work together. Um, and that's uh, you know, and that's been a huge thing, particularly in, in the way I teach now. Um, the that aspect of, of coordinating work um, is one of my key things. I would imagine debrief would have played a bigger part in what you were doing over there too. Yeah, and people don't think of uh, people people don't think of uh, M and M's and debrief uh, as, as applicable to that sort of setting. But in fact, that was something that was very actively done. Um, debriefs both immediately and delayed, um, so we could shake down our processes. Um, and uh, and amazingly, a weekly M and M. So uh, where we'd look at 
all, all of our cases, medical and surgical. Uh, again, something that we probably don't do enough uh, in our in our normal lives that we did uh, a lot of and very effectively in a very uh, open and multidisciplinary way. Um, great, you know, again, a great thing to bring back to uh, back practice at home. Well, Michael, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a, a fascinating uh, journey through some of the things that you've done. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks very much, Todd. More podcasts like this one can be found at our website, www.crit-iq.com.au.